Welcome to episode 41 of Breakout Culture. I'm Ed Vasey, none other than the culture editor of Country and Townhouse magazine. And I'm Charlotte Metcalf, and I'm the associate editor at the magazine. Now, we want to start this week by talking about Iran. For the first time in 90 years, there's a UK exhibition that spans 5,000 years of Iranian art, design and culture. This is Epic Iran, which opened at the V&A on the 29th of May and shines a new light on Iran's historic civilization and its journey into the present century. It brings together over 300 objects from ancient Islamic and contemporary Iran and is organized by the V&A with the Iran Heritage Foundation in association with the Sarikani Collection. Ina Sarikani Sandman from the Sarikani Collection is an associate curator of the exhibition, and we're lucky enough to have her with us, beaming in live from Tate Modern Car Park. Good morning, <laughs> Ina. Good morning, Ed. Such illustrious companions. <laughs> Good morning, Ina, and how wonderful to have you, because this exhibition is definitely designed to shake up our lazy cultural beliefs. I think most Brits, if you ask them, would say that uh, the great ancient cultures were Greek and Roman. But this exhibition is out to challenge that dusty 19th century classicist view. This exhibition follows two previous ones that Neil McGregor, former director of the British Museum, put on. And it was he who said that the Iranian Empire was more important than Greece and as enduring as Rome. That's quite a claim. So start by telling us why this exhibition is so important. Well, you know, Charlotte, Iran has had an unbroken production of culture at the very highest level for many thousands of years. I mean, you know, it's a, it's a real misnomer in the West, because if you want to see ancient Iranian art, you have to go to the BM and go to this gallery called the Ancient Near East. And if you want to see medieval Iranian art, then you have to go to the V&A and go to this place called the Islamic Art Gallery, which isn't devotional art, as you know, but just art from countries whose official religion is Islam. And then if you want to see contemporary Iranian art, you go to the Tate Modern, where I'm sitting now, and then you go and see <laughs> some contemporary art. And what has been lost, and what inevitably happens, is that the connections between those centuries of art is, is lost. And so what we have here is an opportunity to show that incredible story that this art and culture has been connected to each other it's reinvented itself it has been continuous but this Iranian identity is really really tenacious one of the key themes of this podcast is FOMO where Charlotte and I lament <laughs> we're never invited to anything and we know there was a massive gala dinner at the V&A which uh, Nick Coleridge who's been on this po podcast didn't invite us to so we haven't yet seen the exhibition although it's all over my Instagram because everybody I know went to the dinner and I gather there have been lots of treasures that have been unearthed in the last few years in Iran. But obviously, their political relations between our country and Iran are not terrific, particularly, obviously, because the imprisonment of Nazanin Zaghari Ratcliffe. And no Iranian cultural institution has actually lent objects to this exhibition. So it's been entirely effectively uh, down to you. The Iran Heritage Foundation, the British Museum and your collection have been monumentally generous. So how did it all come about, this extraordinary exhibition? Yeah, I mean, well, Ed, I mean, you must bear in mind that we have really good relationships with our partner institutions in Iran as well, both the National Museum of Iran, um, but also with like commercial, I mean, contemporary art, with artists who live there. We had hoped to borrow from the National Museum of Iran, but it's not really the diplomatic issue. It's, it's a combination of sanctions which have made issues of transportation and insurance so difficult and in fact nearly impossible and then the COVID outbreak however there are 32 lenders to this exhibition you know we have the great museums of the world you know the Met the Hermitage the Louvre as well as all the great British lenders including Her Majesty the Queen as well as a bunch of private collectors so 
nonetheless, you are going to be having a feast for your eyes. Now, of course, one of the stars of the show is the 2,700-year-old clay tube, the famous Cyrus Cylinder. Tell us a bit more about that. Well, I mean, the Cyrus Cylinder is a star of ancient world full stop in a way it is what's been called the first universal bill of rights it's when cyrus invaded babylon and united the persians and the medes to create the achaemenid empire you know the the greatest empire of the world up to that point and in it he freed all the people who'd been enslaved and he said that people should be allowed to live where they want and practice whichever religion that they want and the interesting thing about Iran is one of the reasons it's maintained its sense of identity its geography is this giant mountainous plateau um, on the cusp of the three continents and and it's kept that integrity but it's not an ethnic identity so there are many different peoples who live upon that many different languages many different religions and cyrus celebrates that with this remarkable cylinder from as you said 2700 years ago but what i think is so exciting about the exhibition is it's just much more than ancient architect uh, artifacts it's a show designed to give a completely fresh perspective and it's been designed as it were by Gort Scott architects so that as you indicated earlier you know people feel they are actually visiting Esfahan where I have indeed been I was the first parliamentary uh, delegation to visit Iran after the Iranian revolution tell us a bit about how the show has been laid out yeah, I mean, it's, um, it's, it's, a really, it's a really enjoyable experience. We actually start with huge AV screens, you know, um, depicting aerial shots of the landscape of Iran because it has so many different climatic zones. So, you know, it's not just some dusty desert. There are, you know, uh, rainforests and coastlines, you know, both in the Caspian Sea in the north and down to the Gulf in the south. So you get a sense of, um, of the place, but it also informs the material culture of the land you know, the colors, the shapes, the materials, you know, and, and again, as I said, it mountain is plateau. So mountains give you gold and silver and bronze and precious stones and, and all that helps. And then as you progress through the exhibition itself, you get to see different elements, whether it is, you know, as we said, the recreated hall of pillars and Persepolis, uh, the gardens, the library, uh, the palaces and mosques, and get a sense of the many varieties of physical spaces that exist within Iran itself. Well, I am so looking forward to it because unlike Ed, who um, I've never been to Iran and I've always really, really wanted to go. So I'm especially looking forward to the contemporary section, which I think is the, is the last one of 10 major sections in the exhibition. Tell us a bit about what we're going to see there. Yeah, it's so exciting, actually. So we there's two real stories we're telling. The first one is mid-20th century art. I mean, there is, again, another misnomer in, um, in the West that somehow modernism was created in you know, Europe and America and then exported as a cultural good around the world. But in fact, anyone who's interested in, world, in, in culture from around the world will see that that's not the case. And in Iran, there are different languages of modernity being expressed. So the first story we're telling is of this. You know, there are people who were very interested in creating a distinctly Iranian, Iranian modernity. Um, there's a school called the Sakakhane school, which kind of appropriate local visual idioms and languages and superstitions to create really experimental works of art and some of those you'll be seeing there but then others for example who worked in abstraction or who are interested in surrealism um, or spirituality you then have the rupture of course this incredible moment in history of the revolution and then the iran iran iraq war and a change you know another regime change in iranian history and what's interesting in the final section is how dynamic and exciting the works are being produced by iranian artists in the 21st century, so over the last 20 years, where they're 
whether they're living in Iran or in exile or straddling between the two, they're pushing their own identity and challenging themselves and their viewers by addressing issues of gender and politics and spirituality and religion and really what it means to be human. And we're showing their work at the very highest level across a number of media. So we have film, sculpture, painting, photography, uh, installation work, animation. So you're really going to have to carve out some time, Charlotte. Oh, well, thank you so much. I'm really, really looking forward to it. Brilliant. Thanks so much. Now, I defy almost anyone who listens to this podcast and who lives in Britain not to have heard of our next guest, because he's an absolute pillar of the Radio 4 schedules, presenting Start the Week, and of course, he has his own politics show on the BBC every Sunday morning. Absolutely essential viewing for anyone who needs to know anything about politics. And in the spirit of fear of missing out that pervades this podcast, I should note that I have never been asked onto that program. <laughs> but anyway... <laughs> I am, of course, talking about Andrew Marr, who'd probably be considered a bit of a national treasure where he's still not such a formidable and rigorous inquisitor. But today we're leaving politics behind to talk about his paintings because he has a new exhibition opening at the Eames Fine Art in Bermondsey on the 9th of June. Good morning, Andrew. Good morning, Ed. I'll have you on in due course if you're very kind. <laughs> I'll start a row with someone as an excuse to get on. Good man. Good, Good morning, Andrew, and thank you for squeezing us in, because I know from talking to your gallery this morning that you're on a very tight schedule. So we're delighted you found time for us, even if you've never found time for Ed on your programme. <laughs> no. <I'm> <laughs> no, this is a theme. This is a theme. We've got terrible FOMO, Ed and I. Now, can you start by telling us where on earth you found time to draw and paint because I gather that every single day you make sure you finish at least one piece of art before contemplating anything else on your schedule. For a man who has to read about three books a week for start the week alone, this seems unfeasible. Well, I get up relatively early and work very hard. I mean, I have drawn uh, all my life and at the moment, uh, since the stroke, I make sure I make a drawing every day. These are sort of abstract drawings, but reflecting my mood, things that have happened to me during the day. So they're both they're both a kind of visual diary and also a discipline to keep myself thinking about drawing and drawing better all the time. And I also make oil paintings in a studio near my house. And I spend probably three days a week, I will be there for a few hours, or at least until my back gives in painting. And it's just something that's become essential to me. And I regard the paintings as as much a form of communication uh, between me and the outside world as any of my articles or books or broadcasts. They are communications. And therefore, it's really important to me that people see them and think about them and argue about them or whatever, which is why I'm very pleased this exhibition's happening. Uh, I initially thought painting and drawing for you was a sort of art therapy, physical art therapy, if you like, somebody who's had a stroke and wants to regain their motor skills, as it were, to put it very crudely. But you're also saying to a certain extent it's mental therapy. And I'm wondering whether you started this when you became a political journalist, as it were, to switch off from the hustle and bustle of the day to day, or it's always been something that's inside you and therefore it's not even work therapy or physical therapy. It's just something you love to do. The biggest row I can recall when I was a small child was um, getting a severe telling off and probably a spanking from my parents because I had rolled aside one of the sofas and used the nice white blank wall to draw all over. I drew over <laughs> everything all the time. And really since then, all the way through school and university and my working life, I've drawn and painted. But because... Life is busy and, you know, you have 
marriages and kids and jobs and schedules and deadlines and so forth, the painting for a long time tended to be something I did either on holiday um, or at the weekends. And I painted sub, 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 sub Hockney landscapes and oil sketches outside. And then I had my stroke. And because I'm semi-paralyzed on the left side, that meant really I couldn't do that. It's very, very hard to take an easel and all the gear and the equipment and set it up, particularly if there's a slight wind blowing. Uh, and so I had to retreat to the studio. The kind of paintings I had always loved, which are abstract paintings in the great British or English tradition of the 20th century, I felt, well, I can't do that because I never went to art school and I'm not clever enough and all the rest. Then I thought, well, that's ridiculous. Life is short, if not now, when? And therefore, I, I, my painting and my drawing took a different turn. And this is the fifth or sixth solo show I've done. So it's something I've been taking quite seriously for a long time. Before I was a political journalist, and then it changed as it were, but not because of the political journalism, but because of the stroke. I was really interested by by what you said about you see every painting as a as a sort of communicative postcard, and that your role yes. as a communicator is, you know, very very important. Each each picture certainly has some kind of meaning for me. They are they're abstract in the sense that I'm thinking very very heavily about shape. Uh, colour combinations. I think like a lot of people interested in art, a very strong emotional reaction to colour and to combinations of colour. But within that, there are also fairly easy to read motifs based on the five senses and human beings in my pictures. Um, And I think the moods of the pictures, which are different, are also very easy to read. I am a relatively sunny, optimistic kind of person. And these are mostly pretty sunny, optimistic pictures. They're about the fact that life is short, but the world is beautiful. These are oil paintings, a colour on flat surfaces, and they cover landscapes, townscapes, uh, flower paintings, nudes. I regard them as a pretty traditional set of images by a pretty traditional uh, picture maker, working in, as I say, that great, great tradition of British um, 20th century abstract painting. I said earlier, you know, was your art a sort of escape from politics? Do you think being an artist, and I think it's fair to call you an artist, that the artistic sensibility, as it were, does that change one's approach to politics? Good question. Um, The only thing that I can see that connects the two is that I am quite emotional and um, I have strong emotions and strong reactions to things. And I think you can tell that by the way I uh, do my interviewing. And I've got an endless uh, insatiable curiosity about the world around me. So I am really, really interested in why politicians do things, what the real outcomes of what they do are going to are, how they cope with the extraordinary pressure they live under. And those are all things that are reflected in the paintings. But it, it, is, a, it is a terrible cliche, of course, that Winston Churchill was loved to paint. And as in oh, yes. did the late Duke of Edinburgh. Do, do you think, I mean, would that say anything about Churchill, do you think? As opposed so, to, say, Attlee, who didn't paint. Well, we know that Churchill had his black dog and these terrible depressions um, and was under ferocious pressure for a lot of his life. And he turned to painting to give him a release. And in a sense, at crucial times of his life, uh, painting saved Churchill, saved his sanity. And therefore, I think you could argue if painting saved Churchill and Churchill saved this country, then painting saved this country. (laughs) Sort of. I'm going with this. Do you think politicians take the art seriously enough? Not at all. I'm really, really upset about it. 
I'll give you two examples. We have now several generations of kids coming through British schools who have never been taught that they can draw because they all can draw. And they've never been taught how to make images, how to draw the basics of drawing. Now, without the basics of drawing, you can't have design, you can't have engineering design, you can't have all the, the great craft designs that, you know, the, 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 the chairs and, and the design that British people have lived off. We are a great design country from ranging from Rolls-Royce engines to leather chairs, to clothes, to cars, you know, the shape of the beetle, the shape of... Now, all of that comes from drawing. It's not just about fine art. And yet we have robbed generations of children of the essential skills that they need. David Hockney was taught how to draw and is now probably the world's most famous artist. And by the way, one of those people who earns a huge income, not just for himself, but for this country by his art. But somebody with David Hockney's innate skills, who is currently 31 years or 21 years old, has almost certainly not been given the skills that David was given. And that is to rob that person of the ability to express themselves and make a good living. I think that's absolutely awful. So that's one example. And I'll give you one more example very quickly, which is that uh, currently uh, I can go into John Lewis and uh, jostle among people to buy shoes or shirts. And I can go into large supermarkets and spend as long as I want there. And I can go to some football grounds, but I can't easily walk into a major art gallery, even those places, even though those places have huge rooms which have worked very well ventilated. And throughout this pandemic, it seemed to me that allowing people to go and see art has been lower down in people's priorities than pubs, restaurants, or anything else. And I think that's very, very sad and says something about us as a country, which we ought to be ashamed of. Oh, music to our ears. (laughs) We love it on this podcast. (laughs) So last question, promise. And it's it's normally Charlotte's question, so it's incredibly boring and cliched. But um, (laughs) Andrew, who is your favourite artist? For me, the most life-affirming and complex and interesting British post-war artist is Gillian Ayres, who I think is a complete oh, hero of the abstract world, but the absolute um, god of, of modern painting in who influences anybody, I think, heavily, who wants, who takes painting seriously, is, of course, Matisse. So your exhibition is open for six days a week, open to all from 9th of June yes. till the 4th of July. Well, thank you so much, Andrew. That was absolutely... You're I never knew you painted. Edward How embarrassing Carl. is that? <laughs> Not at all. Not at all. I hope more people will soon know. (laughs) Okay, thank you both very much indeed. Thank you. Thank you, Andrew. Regular listeners will know that I'm absolutely mad about Regent's Park Open Air Theatre. It's in a magical setting. It has great bars and places to eat if it's too wet for a picnic in the park. And apart from anything else, it puts on wonderful plays. From the first time I ever saw A Midsummer Night's Dream there as a schoolgirl, I can honestly say I've never spent an unhappy minute there. Anyway, I'm delighted to say that it's opening again on the 17th of June with a new production of Romeo and Juliet, directed by Kimberly Sykes. Kimberly Sykes has directed lots of Royal Shakespeare Company productions, including the award-winning 2017 production of Dido, Queen of Carthage, for which he was nominated Best Director at the UK Theatre Award. To tell us all about this production, we're absolutely delighted to have with us today Isabel Adamarco-Young, who's going to be playing Juliet. Good morning, Isabel. Good morning. Hello. Hi, Isabel. Hi. Uh, It must be a real treat to be playing this role in such a beautiful setting. Now, I've got to say, we've got our best 
spies onto this. We've done a deep dive <laughs> on the internet to try and find out about it, but we can't find much. It still seems to be very under wraps. We know that Romeo is being played by Joel McCormack, who uh, did an outstanding performance as Orestes in the Oresteia at the Globe. And also listeners might have heard him last Christmas uh, as John Jasper in Radio 4's Edwin Drood. So tell us about what it's like, obviously, to be working with him, um, how the production's going. Oh, God, it's been great. It's been such a joy to be back in the room. Yeah, the uh, I've never worked at the Regent's Park, but it's it's an absolute gift of a space. Even without the audience there, the final ingredient, it's so beautiful already, just with the trees behind us and the open air above us. There are lots of parts where Juliet speaks to the sun and, you know, nature and night and all this stuff. And it's it's just so exciting to think that it's actually going to be there. You know. So in the script, which I have to admit I'd never noticed before, Verona is 11 years after a big earthquake. So we're sort of looking at that as, a, as an influencing factor on how our Verona is when we start the play. It's this kind of austere, repressed play Um, And so Romeo and Juliet meet and uh, they dare to fall in love, be authentic and physically touch, um, which is a huge deal in our production as the rest of the company is socially distanced. I didn't know that it was set after an earthquake either. I'd never noticed that. Where does that come in? The nurse has it in her speech about um, uh, my lord and you were then at Mantua and then she talks about the earthquake and how she lost her husband and child. Now, Izzy, I've seen you at before. You you were brilliant in letters at the Gate Theatre, for example. But you've come quite late to acting, haven't you, as you were an agent for a while. Um, So Julia, it's a pretty wonderful role, even for an established actress. So you must be thrilled to have got it. Tell me how it came about. Oh, it's just it's yeah it's so so exciting um yeah as you say I was a literary agent for a little while then I did um the National Youth Theatre rep company training when I left that I uh went to Stratford-upon-Avon with the RSC um and I did Venice Preserved there and The Provoked Wife playing relatively small roles but I was lucky enough to have understudy responsibilities um or cover as we call it these days and uh yeah I guess that's probably where Kim first sort of got a set, got a bit of a sense of me. So I'm on the board of the National Youth Theatre. So could you just give us, uh, you know, five minutes of just how <laughs> unbelievably brilliant the National Youth Theatre is now? It completely changed your life. I mean, honestly, it did. You know, it sounds. Whenever I go into this stuff, I feel like you know, oh God, they're paying me. But it's I. I can't help but love the place. Anyone who's interested in acting, you know, whether that's for a career or just as a way to learn about yourself and other people, I think it's so useful for for so many young people to do their summer courses. Um, so I did an intake course with them, which kind of first gave me a sense of what it's like to work in a professional room um in theater and then yeah then i later auditioned for their rep company which is a kind of more intense nine month process of training and you work with four professional like external directors to make four different productions so yeah i was lucky enough to get to play like lady macbeth at the garrick in the west end which just again i couldn't believe my luck (laughs) but what's what's really lovely about it is that it's it's um it's very diverse it's just a, a fantastic way to to learn about yourself and the world really and learn that craft. I think that's what was really important to me. Can I just back you up there, Izzy? And Ed, if you want to plug for the National Youth Theatre, it's thanks to you that I, um, my daughter went there and she is actually 14 when she went and she loved it so much that when she went home, she went, no disrespect, mum, but this is my emotional and spiritual home now. Because <laughs> she loved it so much. <laughs> so it is, it is amazing. And obviously launched you on this fantastic career. So tell us a bit more about the play. What is it in Elizabethan dress? What are we going to see? Yeah, so um, Kim's done this fantastic edit. Um, we don't, don't have a full runtime yet, but it's, it's I think, about 
an hour 45 is the idea. We love a short play. <laughs> um, so yeah, it's, it's sort of neatly trimmed. It's uh, straight through, no interval, um, which is partly due to COVID precautions, but also partly just, you know, let's just tell the story till it's done. It's got real drive to it. Um, it's modern dress. We've got this fantastic sort of structure, this three tiers structure, which is really lovely because it means we'll be able to look even people at the back of the auditorium dead in the eye. <laughs> and yeah, and then there's this fantastic sort of earth ground level with a huge crack in it, which is which is the aftermath of the earthquake. So um, it's, it's all about who chooses to see, who refuses to see um, and who has the courage to, you know, to speak truthfully and to be authentic. And it, it'll be the first time you've heard an audience flawed for a year. Oh, my goodness, I can't wait. <laughs> and actually, there are still, astonishingly, some tickets available. So it is the nicest theatre in the world. And I can vouch for Izzy's acting. <laughs> so <laughs> so um, good luck, Izzy. And thank you so Thanks. much for coming on our podcast. Thanks so much. Thank you so much. That's all we've got time for this week, but we'll put all the details of Andrew Marr's exhibition and the V&A show Epic Iran and Romeo and Juliet at the Regent's Park Theatre on our website, which is, as I'm sure you all know by now, www.countryandtownhouse.co.uk. There you'll also find our great British brands website hosted by Michael Heyman and our sister podcast, House Guest for All Lovers of Interior Design. This week, Carol Annette talks to interior designer Chris Dezil from Honky. <laughs> and just add newsletter for both our weekly Country and Town House newsletter and our new Great British Brands June newsletter, which is essential reading as the ultimate guide to the summer season and everything that goes with it from dressing up to unmissable events. We'll be back again next week, so tune in again then. And please do subscribe and leave comments as that really helps us boost our audience. See you next week. Goodbye.